Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. When people talk about bluegrass music, they'll usually talk about how great the banjo player is or the mandolin player or the guitar player, but nobody ever talks about the bass player. What they don't realize is that the bass player is the glue that holds everything together. He may be the most important member of the band. That's a big role to fill, and if you're not feeling up to the task, the Bluegrass Bass Complete Learning System will get you there. Everything you need in one place to make sure your band doesn't fall apart. Click the link in the show notes to get the full details and take 20% off. Act quick though, this offer won't be around forever. Howdy folks and welcome to Grass Talk Radio. And thank you, Jared, for that fine announcement of that wonderful savings. Those of you who would like to take advantage of that fabulous savings, simply look in the show notes for this episode and use that coupon code and save a few bucks. Thank you, Jared. Now, today's episode. I have a little thing on my website that I've had for many years, uh, quite a few years, called the personal feedback solution. And uh, when people take advantage of that and use it, I'll just briefly describe it. The, The gist of it is, with video lessons, I don't have the advantage of seeing the student play. Where in private lessons, you know, I see the knucklehead doing the wrong thing and I smack him with the ruler. Well, actually, I never did that, but you know, I can see the student play, and then I say, whoa, 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 wait a minute there, bub. Uh, slow down there a minute and uh, try this, because I could see them. But with video lessons, I cannot see them. So I devised a system so that people who use my instructional material could send me videos of their playing and then get feedback from me, you know, Talking about, okay, you know, there at uh, 5.14 in your video, I noticed that you did X, Y, Z, and let me, let me explain. Uh, so I have this little system called the Personal Feedback Solution, and I will put a link to that in the show notes right along with Jared's fabulous uh, discount coupon code. Just look in the show notes for today's episode. Either go to grasstalkradio.com and slide down to this episode, click that And I will have a link there. Or if you're any podcast user, there's a description and you simply read the description. You'll find the links in there. So what I thought I would do today is, and I'm doing this with the permission of Miss Heather. Heather uh, recently um, sent me a video, one of these personal feedback solution videos, and I responded to her, and I, I found her her to be very interesting, and uh, I thought you might enjoy, you know, being a fly on the wall to one of these sessions, so that you would know kind of how I do this. So, and I asked Heather for her permission to release this in the podcast, just so that, you know, in case you didn't know I even do this, that you would know. And in the future, if it would be beneficial to you, you might want to do the same sort of thing. So what we're going to do today for the podcast is listen to um, Heather. um, And this is the audio from her video that she sent me. 
and of my responses to it to try to help her um, progress with her mandolin playing. So I hope you all enjoy this. And it's kind of long, but you know me, I, I get a little long-winded. Anyway, I hope you all enjoy this uh, sort of demonstration. And uh, this is really going to be useful to any beginner mandolin players out there. And the rest of you may just simply find it entertaining. Anyway, here we go with a personal feedback solution. Um, you might call it a transmission or a transaction between Heather and myself. And thank you, Heather, for, for allowing me to put this on the podcast. And so here we go. Hello, Heather. This is Brad, and I appreciate the video that you sent. Um, I watched the video and listened to it um, a couple of times, and I took a few notes. You can hear my paper rattling. I took a few notes, and I thought what I would do um, to help Hopefully this will work work well for you. What I'm going to do is I transferred the audio from your video over to my computer. And what I'm going to do is play your audio and then I'm just going to pause here and there along the way and just uh, give you some of my, my thoughts, my feedback, as it were. So let's begin first thing I want to say is uh, clearly you have you have a beautiful southern accent and I'm just curious as to where you live I'm not an expert in southern accents although I'm sure I have one being down here in South Georgia and growing up around the Atlanta area Jonesboro in particular uh, but I detect a southern accent and uh, I don't know why I'm thinking perhaps North Carolina but I'm not sure I'm not sure why I think that and uh, before we get started, well, let me just let me just start your audio, and I'll jump in and out from time to time. There are a couple of things that I that I saw visually that I will will I'll talk about, um, and a few things that I heard. But no big deal. It, you're basically doing very well. And uh, well, let me well let me just play your audio, and then I'll break in here and there as we go through this. So here we go. This is you talking. Hi there. <clears throat> My name is Heather Freeman and I got a mandolin for Christmas and decided that I want to learn to play it, of course. So before I get into actually playing, I just wanted to take a few minutes and tell you a little bit about myself. <laughs> That way you'll know where I'm coming from, um, what kind of musical background I have. And I just want to pause you right there. Um, it, it's funny, I, I've taught um, many, many, many people through online lessons, and then I never have a chance to meet them or see them play. You know, it's so different to do a video and put it out there and not really have any idea who is uh, seeing it and how they're doing with it. And then I have also, for many, many years, taught private lessons, as it sounds like you have. Maybe not private, but classes and so forth. I'm taking off my jacket here. Um, it, it's so different for a, for a, a student teacher 
relationship to be in the same room together because you can, you know, as you're describing um, who you are and, you know, those sorts of things and your background and stuff, it reminds me how many uh, lessons I have had with people, their first lesson, their second lesson, their third lesson, where it just becomes a conversation where we just really get to know each other. And I think that's so important and so missing from this video online learning stuff. And so anyway, just want to say that, um, you know, there, there have been um, students of mine that I've had, you know, come for a lesson and we would talk and just converse for half the lesson. And sometimes I felt guilty, like they're not getting their money's worth. But on the other hand, I feel like it's really important to you know, know what experience. I would ask people, did you play in band? Were you in band? Uh, did you ever take piano lessons and things like this? And so I appreciate you, um, you know, describing your your background for me. And it's very interesting. I'm, I'm humbled. I have no degree in music. I have a two-year degree in forestry, of all things. And uh, anyway, we'll go back to here you are talking again. So I have a, I do have a master's degree in music and in Spanish, which has nothing to do with the mandolin, but uh, anyway, this is still a useless piece of information there. I've been teaching for 17 years and I've taught everybody from elementary to uh, the college level. So... I, um, I also play piano at church. My major instrument in college was the French horn. Okay, got to pause you there. I don't know if you read my bio on my website. I'm sure I've mentioned it before, but I too am a French horn player, or was, uh, beginning in the 7th grade through 12th grade. I played the French horn in the Morrow Junior High School Band and the Morrow High School Band. In fact... On the very last podcast I did, I'm not sure you didn't mention it, whether or not you are a listener to my podcast, and I would encourage you to do so because it's there, while a lot of it is maybe not pertinent to learning to play the mandolin, you will certainly get to know me better, and uh, it's a lot of stories and experiences and things like that that I've had, so I wanted to mention the podcast since you didn't, you may have listened to all of them for all I know. But uh, you can find my free podcast at grasstalkradio.com. And there, I think, 180, 85 episodes so far. And some of them will answer some of the questions that you have about the mandolin. And, and, and in particular, bluegrass, because I don't, you probably don't have many music questions. In fact, you may be able to correct me on some of my musical errors of, because I'm not the trained musician that you are. Other than I've been trained by playing, you know, 3,000 gigs and 3,000 rehearsals and 3,000 gigs. And, you know, I consider myself as much an entertainer as I do consider myself a musician, although I think I'm both. You know, but I don't claim to be up on any high pedestal when it comes in terms of um, music theory. And my 12-year-old son knows more about music than I do. He is, and by the way, he plays the French horn too. And probably, you know, chip off the old block. And he's also uh, uh, taking piano lessons and playing the piano. He's, he's pretty good. You can hear him on the podcast. And uh, 
I just wanted to mention the podcast because it may, there may be things there that uh, you simply, you don't get in the video lessons. You know, when I started the podcast, I, I don't mean this to just be a pitch for the podcast, but I want to mention it because there's a tremendous amount of material there. When I did the video lessons that you are now working through, beginning Mandolin 1, beginning Mandolin 2, Froggy Lena Courtland, all that kind of stuff, I was very limited in time. I had 20 minutes to 30 minutes approximately, and I had to get get to it and try to transmit the information of how to play. And so I couldn't tell stories. I couldn't just stop in the middle and tell a 15-minute story about this crazy bluegrass festival or the time I opened for fish and I had no idea who they were and stuff like that. So I think you'll enjoy the podcast. Maybe you're already a listener. But if you're not, look for Grass Talk Radio. You can go to grasstalkradio.com. You can also pull it up on the Apple Podcasts. The easiest way to find it is just to search for the word bluegrass. And you'll find me there, Grass Talk Radio. And there are a lot of mandolin-specific lessons. There are a lot of bluegrass. It, it's bluegrass, bluegrass, bluegrass. Anyway, wanted to mention the podcast. And also uh, tell you that my mother also was a piano player and organist, church organist, from, uh, you know, she was a kid in Indiana, in, born in 1936, and took piano lessons and I guess maybe she was the only one in the church who could play anything and they needed an organist and she became an organist. And my entire life, uh, throughout, well, until the day she died, she was a church pianist and organist. And so that's probably where I got my music was just, you know, sitting on the floor next to the organ, drawing cartoons on the back of the bulletin. Because we always had to go to both services, you know, mom had to play early and late. So we always had to, we had the choice. We could, we had to sit downstairs for one of the two and the other one we could hide up in the balcony and just goof off and stuff. Anyway, so I, I can, uh, I can relate to a lot of uh, your, what I think are your musical experiences. Let's go back this and forgive me if this is kind of long, but I, I find these things to be very much a lot of fun. So let's go back to you talking. Uh, I've probably spent more time playing the piano than anything. I am mostly classically trained on every instrument, although um, I do really enjoy good bluegrass music also. I want to pause you there and uh, mention that, you know, I'm a little bit classically trained, certainly like band band level training and uh but i wanted to point out to you in case you aren't aware and you probably already are there is uh for mandolin there are there is of course bluegrass and there is also celtic and there are various folk you know employments of the mandolin but there is also a classical world which preceded bluegrass i mean i i think uh, um, you know, my son could correct me on this, you know, Beethoven, Mozart, some of these people have wrote for mandolin. Um, there is a classical mandolin world, and you might also be interested in, in exploring that as well. There are old method books, and 
there's a lot of stuff going on in the classical mandolin world, which you might be interested in. A lot of players do both, and I'm, I'm one of those. When I first got the mandolin and started playing, I was, you know, listening to records and copying what I heard. That's, that's how I learned. And I picked up a few books along the way and it was sort of the learn by doing plan. And I was not reading standard notation, even though I could at the time, I didn't even know there was such a thing as classical mandolin, but there is. And, uh, in the nineties, I became a, uh, I was invited to join the Atlanta mandolin society orchestra. It was called AMSO. And they met every Monday night, and I began as a mandola player with the Atlanta Mandolin Society Orchestra, and then later switched over to mando cello. And I, I played with them probably from about 97 through 2001. So it's just something I'm mentioning because the orchestra was made up of uh, people. There, were, there was also a Russian uh, balalaika society in Atlanta, and Balaika being very similar to mandolin, a lot of about half of the members of the Atlanta Mandolin Society Orchestra were also members of the Balaika Orchestra, and uh, we even had a bass Balaika player in the mandolin orchestra. Uh, so there was some crossover there, and there were it was about fifty-fifty the people in the orchestra who had a classical background and or Russian. Um, influence, you know, the, where they were in that balaika stuff and versus the bluegrass players who learned to play, you know, by playing old Joe Clark and Cripple Creek and going to bluegrass festivals and stuff like this and became very talented on their instruments, but were struggling to read and were not steeped in classical traditions, you might say. I'm simply bringing this up not to toot my horn because I certainly wasn't the best one in that orchestra. But just to point it out that it does exist. So if you have any interest in classical mandolin, I encourage you to uh, just uh, look for it and explore it. You know, a good example of this is Mike Marshall and his his wife, Katerina Lichtenberg, I believe is her name. Uh, she's from what was East Germany and is a classical mandolin player. He was a kid from Florida who became a bluegrass player and then played in um, David Grisman's band and did a whole lot of things. And Mike Marshall is one of those guys who lives in both world, worlds, both bluegrass and the classical mandolin world. Uh, just something I'm just pointing out to you because you, a little further on in here, you talk about holding the pick and so on. And when I was in the orchestra, I saw a lot of different ways to approach the mandolin. The, uh, some of the more um, classically trained people held the mandolin differently. Uh, there were a lot of foot rests, uh, footstools in place, much like you would see with a classical guitarist where their left foot is elevated about four or five inches off the ground. Uh, there were different methods of, of uh, right hand, you know, the way they held the pick and the way they approach the strings and stuff is a little different. So it's just something I'm just pointing out to encourage you to, uh, you know, maybe consider not only bluegrass, although I am, I am a diehard bluegrasser, uh, but also look into the classical 
world of Madeline as well. Let's go back to you talking because you see, I could just talk forever on this. So let's just uh, go back to what you were saying. Took violin lessons when I was younger. And uh, again, although I did mostly classical music, we did do a little bluegrass and um, I really enjoyed it. So I have um, dabbled just a bit in guitar and ukulele. I know just enough to be dangerous on those. But I decided about six months ago that I would like a mandolin because, you know, I'm a music teacher. I collect instruments. <laughs> and I had not gotten around to buying me one, and my mother surprised me with one for Christmas. God bless your mother. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Who, you know, that's the best Christmas present anybody could ever get. Your mom gets you a mail for Christmas. Three cheers to Mom there. Merry Christmas to all y'all. Uh, back to you again. Being the music teacher that I am, I knew that I wanted to learn to play it correctly. Um, because as we all know, and you said in your lessons, if you learn a bad habit, it's really hard to break that. I'm going to pause you there. Okay, let's talk just for a second about that concept, learning to do it correctly. You're correct. There are multiple ways of being correct. You know, there isn't one way. So throughout my lessons, and I know you don't have the benefit of, of seeing what I'm doing, but I do talk about some of the things. Um, I have seen so many different ways of holding a pick, of um, placing fingers on top of the mandolin versus not, and you see everything, and yet many of these people with vastly differing approaches to how to hold the pick and all that stuff uh, play extremely well. So I'm not one of these, uh, you know, like technique Nazis, because first of all, I know that I probably do it all wrong. And, but what I do is what I, what I do that I know works for me. Now, sometimes people will use that as an excuse. They'll, they'll pick up the pick and the mandolin and play the way they naturally want to play. But, and then somebody suggests, well, maybe you should try this, try this. And they're always suggesting what works for them, not necessarily what works for you. So I, in, I just encourage people to be a bit flexible, take people's advice, and then run it through your own filters and test it, test it, give it a fair test. Because, you know, I've had people offer me advice about, well, you know, you're probably holding the pick wrong or something, or you should use this pick or these strings or, you know. And if you don't give it a fair test, you cannot fairly judge the advice you're getting give it, a, you know, try these things. You have a, a beautiful opportunity because you're new to the mandolin. So there are no ingrained uh, diehard habits that are impossible to break at this point. And wisely, you're, you've acknowledged that. So try a lot of different things. Try different picks, try different ways of holding the pick, try different ways of positioning the instrument, and find what works the best.
And there is something to the fact that, you know, a hundred thousand other people before you have learned to play the mandolin. Uh, let's say a hundred thousand people have learned to play the mandolin well. And there is some sort of average that emerges out of that, that this is probably the best way to approach it. You know, a standardized technique is the result of the combination of many, many, many techniques of different people. You see this in the classical world. They tell you, you know, I'm holding the bow. You know, well, you put your, you know, your thumb here and your little finger here and all this sort of stuff. But then you go to a, a fiddler's convention and you see people just playing the snot out of the fiddle and not following any of those rules. So be your own judge. But uh, do take the advice of great players and consider it and give them a fair test. Uh, and I don't put myself in that great players category. Okay, back to you. I found your lessons online and thought they looked really good. And I'm about, just about all the way through the beginner level. Um, I've done about three and a half lessons. And of course, I'm nowhere near perfect, but... I am trying and practicing every day. Well, let me mention this. Well, you're way ahead of most people. <laughs> you know, the typical student, and I'm, I'm saying this from watching, you know, private lesson students, they're real excited at first, and it's really easy at first. That little two-finger chord, that first G, you know, it's so simple. And it, But then it starts getting difficult. And then you have to practice. And I know you know all this stuff. I'm preaching to the choir here. Let's just go back to you. Uh, um, before I go on and, you know, keep practicing what you've given us to practice in the lessons and even go further, I want to be sure that I'm not practicing any bad habits. Uh, I want to be sure that I'm holding the mandolin correctly, that I'm holding my fingers correctly, that um, I'm holding the pick like I should. And I don't know, some of that may be a matter of personal preference, but I want to do it the best way that I can to get the best sound that I can. And you may be wondering, well, can she not see that in the video? I you know I'm showing all that. Okay. So I had a little technical glitch there. My recorder, uh, the uh, memory card, just suddenly stopped and said it was full. So I had to go and delete a bunch of old podcasts off of this thing. Now, I kind of forgot what I was talking about. But the here's what I want to say about uh, the what I see in the video. Uh, the first thing is I noticed that you're playing an F-style mandolin. It's a beautiful instrument. I had a look at it there. It's really nice. And I was observing the way you have the strap on it. And I want to talk about that before I talk about how to hold the, the, the pick and how to position the instrument in relation to your body and things like that. Because the way the strap is attached and the way you attach the mandolin to your body has a, an impact on that, the geometry of it all. So first thing, I noticed that one end of the strap you have on the strap button down on your above your right leg. That's perfect. And the other side you have attached around the, the 
tuning keys around the peg head. And what I would suggest that you experiment with is taking the strap off of the peg head and attaching that loop around the scroll of the F, the, the scroll right above the fingerboard there. Um, it's a perfect attachment point and it will change the way the, you'll have to change the length of the strap a little bit. But if you attach it to the scroll, just imagine the mandolin hanging in midair and you have one end of, of the strap attached to the strap button and the other attached to the, the scroll, the big scroll right there. It will, it changes the center of gravity. Like if you just held it up, held the strap up by your fingers and balanced the mandolin, you will find that the, the scroll, that uh, beautiful Florentine scroll uh, on the upper side near the neck joint is very, very near the center of gravity of the instrument, where the peg head is not. If you grab it on the peg head end, that seems like a logical thing to do. And if you have an A-style mandolin that does not have the scrolls and points, that's really about your only choice. So with an F-style mandolin, though, and that's what I play, um, I would suggest that you, uh, you try the following regarding the strap. And then we'll talk about the rest of it. Is to uh, disengage your strap from up there at the peg head and attach it at the scroll. Now, and I know this from handling my own mandolin, if I uh, position the strap on the scroll, and you may have to flip it upside down and kind of slide it around to get it in there. But if you do that, and you're not even attached at the end pin, and you just hold the mandolin by the strap and let it dangle by the strap, you'll find that it's very balanced, that the weight of the tuners and the neck is almost the same as the weight of the body of the instrument. And so it's a very, very balanced place to hang the mandolin or to support the mandolin. So I, that would be the first thing I would suggest that you consider um, experimenting with. You may go back to the way you have it now. You may prefer that better. That's fine with me because there's more than one way to skin a cat. And so I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not telling you, you must do this, but I think you should try it. So I would suggest that you disconnect from the peg head and reattach at the big Florentine scroll there on that beautiful F-style mandolin. And then the second thing uh, that I can see in the video is that you have the strap behind your neck um, and then coming down to the peg head and to the scroll. And that your right arm, your right arm, is outside of the strap. And so the, the strap is going from your neck under your right arm down to the, the button, the end pin. So what I suggest you do is to, after you've moved the strap to the scroll, to a more uh, balanced position, that you then let's just say you have the mandolin in your lap and you've now attached one end to the scroll. I would do that and then place it over your left shoulder and down your back, 
down the middle of your back and sort of running at an angle toward your right hip. Then take the strap and attach it to the end pin. So the strap will cross your back from your left shoulder down to your right hip. If I saw you from behind, I would see the strap going from your left shoulder to your right hip rather than just going around your neck. You know, like the way saxophones do. You know, they have that neck strap and it just hangs there in the middle. That's because the instrument is standing pretty much vertically and it's just the neck is used as a support for it. And there are some mantle players, even David Grisman did this for a while. I guess he was hanging around too many sax players. And uh, he started wearing his mantle that way, attached just around his neck the way you have it, but both ends of the strap going to the scroll because that's the center of gravity. I mean, that would be a possibility. I've never done that, so I'm not suggesting that. What I suggest is one end of the strap on the scroll, the other end of the strap on the end pin, and then put it over your head, over the left shoulder, down the back to your right hip. And then this is the important thing. Once you do that, you want to take your right hand under the strap. You're not going to get it down to your right hip on your back with your arm on top, you see. So you want to put your hand through the strap, your right hand through the strap, so that it's behind your back. That gets the strap on your back. And your right hand all the way to the shoulder. There's no strap touching it nowhere. The instrument is attached to your body, more or less. It's not rigidly attached, but the scroll is sort of near your heart. And the strap comes up almost straight up to your left shoulder. And then down at an angle across your back, down to your right hip, and then attaches to the scroll. And your right arm is completely free. And that, that's what I would suggest. Right now you have uh, the, I'm, I don't have the video up here. I, I just took the audio, but uh, looking at it, you were around your neck and then your right arm was on top of the strap. What I'm saying is run that strap across your back down to your right hip and then put your right arm under the strap and through it. That will, that'll create a diagonal across your back from the upper left shoulder to your right hip. And that naturally positions the instrument in that, oh, angled up towards the two o'clock on the clock position. And it puts the center of the instrument right over your solar plexus, your heart. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's some Indian chakra zone there or something, but, uh, it balances better and your right arm is free because it's completely out from under the strap. Now, uh, the second thing I would suggest, once you've done that, once you've attached the mandolin in those places and got your right arm through the strap, doesn't even touch the strap. Your right arm never comes in contact with the strap at all because it's going from your right hip up across your back to the left shoulder. Doesn't even get near the right shoulder. So uh, try that. And if you need more explanation on that, uh, just feel free to write me back, uh, call me or something, whatever. I'm happy to explain it again since I can't show you a picture of it. 
Once you've tried that, I think what you'll discover is that, and this is going to take a minute to describe, and let me preface this by saying what you're doing is not wrong. It's just not the way I would suggest you do it. So take all this with a grain of salt. Um, what, I, what I picture when you have the mandolin on your body, on your chest, it's just hanging there. Now, the neck may fall down a little bit and be straight and be parallel to the ground. And that's not a good playing position it's because the weight of the tuners will, will tend to pull the neck down. We don't want the mandolin to be parallel, the strings of the mandolin to be parallel with earth. We need them up just a little bit. Now, how do you find that perfect spot? Here's the way I think you do it. If you didn't even have the mandolin on, you just it's in the case, and you're just sitting in a chair with your arms sitting flat, you know, you get your hands on your knees and you're just sitting there all nice and relaxed. What I suggest you do to determine that ideal neutral position is to take your left arm. It's, you just hang them down by your side. Down, not, don't rest your hands on your, on your knees. Just let your arms hang straight down. Then take your left arm and raise don't don't move the upper portion of your arm just bend from the elbow until you have 90 degrees and your left hand more or less vertical like the the line of the knuckles of the back of your hand more or less vertical slightly maybe just turned a little bit but almost as if you were going to shake somebody's hand with your left hand so your arms are dangling, your shoulders are loose, and the upper portion of your arm is just dangling. And then you bend by, you know, tightening your bicep of the left arm until you see 90 degrees between your forearm and your upper arm. That is a good, comfortable place. Perhaps maybe even just a tad higher, but you don't want to get real high. The closer you bring that left hand to your shoulder, the tighter your bicep gets. So we're not playing the violin here. <laughs> you know, we have the advantage. We can relax that arm a little bit. You maybe just be slightly above horizontal with your, with your forearm, just slightly above. This is what people say, hold the instrument at the two o'clock position because parallel to the ground, the strings, if, if the strings were the hands of a clock, the strings would be pointing at three o'clock presuming you're inside the clock and you come up just a little bit you're around two o'clock on your left hand the neck is the minute hand or the hour hand and it's pointing at two o'clock that's a good place to be because your arm isn't clenched really high up near your shoulder nor is it way down near your knees open you know where your elbow joint is a wide open angle you know, start about 90 degrees, maybe come up just a little. That's a good, relaxed place. And if your elbow comes back a little bit as you do that, good. Because it's just trying to balance your whole arm. Your whole left arm is just hanging. And if you have, if, if you just let your arm hang, it's hard to do this because you really have to tell your muscles to do nothing. But if you let your arm hang and you form a 90 degree angle, of your forearm and upper arm, your arm will naturally move backwards a little bit. Your elbow will move back. 
And the higher you raise your fist of your left hand, the farther back that elbow will move because the entire arm has a center of gravity. So all I'm saying is with the left arm to find the kind of that ideal angle, let your arm dangle, form a 90 degree, maybe come up just slightly and then let the whole arm relax. Now put your mandolin on and just drop it right in there and you're going to find that's a really comfortable place to be. The closer you bring the neck to your face, the more tense your left arm will become. Or if you do the opposite and you lower the neck down to flat or even tilting downwards, it's going to cause your fingers to have to curl more and more and more to reach the notes. So it's just a super relaxed place to be. Now with the right hand, once you've done that and you've got your mandolin on your body, what I suggest people do with their right arm is, first of all, it's free of the strap. As I said, go across the back at a diagonal. Your, and your right arm has come under the strap and it's not touching the strap at all, is to place your right arm from the elbow to your fingertips flat on the strings so that your fingertips are practically touching the nut, the left hand. And your right elbow is about where the tailpiece is because your arm from elbow to tip of your fingers is roughly the length of the strings. It's not quite as long, but just gently lay it on there flat. And then you'll notice if you're in that position that your, your right elbow is up and in front of you a little bit. And then just relax your right shoulder and allow your hand to run down the strings until you're about midpoint between the end of the fingerboard and the bridge. You just simply relax the shoulder but what you'll see in that position is that your right forearm is closer to parallel with the strings. It's not going to be exactly parallel with the strings unless you lower the neck, which I'm not suggesting you do. But it's more in line with it. So that as your right hand picks back and forth, it's playing per perpendicular to the strings. So you're holding the pick and... If your arm is in line with the strings, pretty, more or less, it doesn't have to be exact, but more in line. Instead of attacking the strings at 30 degrees from an angle, let's say if you raise the neck way, way, way up, you would be at a severe angle and your pick is not going to get the kind of tone it can get if it's playing directly across the plane of the strings and at approximately 90 degrees. I'm not saying you have to do exactly 90, but that's basically it as far as positioning. Now, let's switch gears, talk about how you hold the pick. The way you hold the pick, and, and I'm not saying you have to change the way you hold the pick. Um, there, is, uh, there are some great mandolin players uh, who hold the pick exactly as you are now. So what you're doing is pretty much okay. But I will tell you, just, just for your edification, that uh, the, the standard way of holding the pick is to take your right hand, hold it out in front of you, uh, let the upper part of your arm be completely relaxed, and then raise your right arm to about 90 degrees, again, kind of in that midpoint. Gently curl the fist, not a tight clenched fist, 
just gently curl until the first joint, the end joint of your index finger, lines up under the first joint of the thumb. So that your index finger and your thumb, the, the farthest and the most uh, distal uh, joint of the thumb and the farthest joint of the first finger are just laying there together and more or less in line with each other. Uh, it, it's almost like if you picked up a ticket, like you're going to hand somebody a ticket, like you're the ticket taker and you tear the stub off the ticket and you're going to hand it back to somebody. How would you hand it back to them? That's probably what your hand would look like. It's because it's, anyway, consider that. Just gentle curl of all of your fingers, not clench tight. Because if you clench it tight, you'll find that your thumb extends way up to the middle of your index finger. You just want to be in a gentle half curl. Then your thumb is laying on the side of the index finger. And you got one joint of the thumb laying on top of one joint of the index finger. And they're kind of crossing at a little bit of an angle. They're not going to be perfectly parallel, and they shouldn't be. Just you curled up your fingers gently, and you just plopped your thumb down, laid it on top. That's all you do. Then with your left hand, pick up your pick and just scoot it in between the two of them so that about a quarter of an inch of the pick is showing outside of the left side of your thumb and index finger. The, the second finger, third finger, and fourth finger of the right hand can just stay as relaxed as it can. You shouldn't extend them out straight like I have done so many years and have tried so hard to break that habit. You don't want to stiffly do anything with those fingers. Just let them gently hang out underneath the index, and they'll offer a little bit of support to the index finger. So when you're playing downstrokes, the thumb is supporting the, the pick. When you're playing an upstroke, the index finger is supporting, but because it's a little weaker than the thumb, having that second finger and third finger and fourth finger underneath it kind of gives it the same firmness on an upstroke as well as a downstroke. So there you go. That's my thoughts on how to hold the pick. And then just do what I said. Uh, place your right arm flat on the strings where you're picking almost up near the nut. And feel those strings just glide down those strings until you find that sweet spot maybe just off the end of the fingerboard. And if you have that sort of hand position, don't you don't have to get that thumb and index finger perfectly in line. They can be crossing a little bit. And just kind of glide that pick down the fourth string to that it's you're gonna find the pick is right over your heart. And that's a good place. So there you go. That's my thoughts on pick. Let's go back. I've been talking too much. Let's go back to uh, your audio. So back to you. Yes, I'm sure you are. But there's one other thing I haven't told you. Well, probably more than one. But uh, one other very important piece of information. And that is that I am completely blind. Yes, I have a friend that says I am hard of seeing. So there you go. I'm going to pause you there because I want to say something about that. Um, well, I don't need to tell you this clearly, uh, but there are obviously um, 
amazing musicians who cannot see. Uh, you know, Doc Watson, Stevie Wonder, you know, Ray Charles, etc. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Uh, but what I am fascinated by, I'm fascinated by the fact that I'm, I'm so curious. I, you sent me this video for me to give you feedback. I, I really kind of want your feedback on these uh, idiotic concepts that I have. I'm just so curious as to how, how you're going about learning from my videos, because clearly, you know, 50% of my video lessons are based upon the visuals. And I'm often saying, okay, look here and, you know, <laughs> Uh, see how I'm doing this, that kind of thing. And you're not being able to see that. And I think in, in the end, you may have an advantage because I really think there are a lot of people with, uh, you know, perfectly functioning uh, visual senses who still do not see. Their eyes work, but they don't see. And I've run into many people whose ears work beautifully, but they do not hear. So I think... I don't know. I'm just very curious about this, this whole thing. And, uh, you know, I, I probably talked about this on a podcast, but I, I got to know Doc Watson, uh, through our band and through a friend in a Malawi. I won't tell the whole story here, but, um, got to hang around with him some and our band opened for, for them, uh, Doc and Merle Watson. And then later Doc and, and Jack Lawrence and so on. And got to know his grandson, Richard, and people like that. And uh, it was always just fascinating to me. It just the, the entire world of, of uh, blindness has always interested me because it, it, I think there are a lot, I, don't, I can't say that I know this from experience, but I think there are a lot of misconceptions about it. And I would, I'd be really curious to know how you are like, uh, for example, I, you know, those lessons that you're, you're discussing come with little play along tracks. I perfectly understand how those could be useful if, you know, they're audio tracks. The video itself is not useful, but the talking, and I, I'm curious, I want to go back and watch those videos or play those videos with the, you know, and don't look at them. You know, I should listen to these lessons and see what was it I was saying. Because I think sometimes people don't listen to what I'm saying in the videos because they're watching what I'm doing and they're distracted by that. And clearly you are not distracted by that. So you're hearing surely some things that I said that other people might not even be aware of. Anyway, I don't know. I just find the whole thing fascinating. And, uh, well, uh, I guess on the, on the, to, to close out of that subject, um, I was uh, neighbors with a, uh, he became a very good friend of mine and he was blind and he lived next door to me. We, we had adjoining apartments and I got to know this guy. He was a ham radio operator and I was too. And, um, we hung out a lot and, uh, he taught me how to type on the Braille typewriter and was teaching me Braille and just all kind of stuff. And we used to mess around with uh, computers a lot. And he had the old, uh, he had screen reading programs. This is back in the nineties. So pretty primitive probably compared to what they have today. Anyway, we just became, uh, you know, close friends. And, and because we hung around and walked around town and did all this stuff together, I began to view the world differently. 
you know, the way he crossed the street and the way I crossed the street was completely different because he listened to the traffic and the clicking of the relays in the traffic light to know when it was safe to cross. And I didn't do it that way. I looked at the traffic and I watched the traffic lights and I, I just find the whole thing completely fascinating. And I think um, you're blessed in that you have a different perspective on the world. So anyway, enough about that. And uh, let's go back to your audio. So before I continue practicing, I would just like some feedback on what I'm doing wrong, um, what I could do to make my playing better. And this um, mandolin's going a little bit out of tune since I just got it. It's better than it was. But um, I'm going to do the very simple version of Froggy Went a Courtin'. And I'm going to pause you there. Uh, I just want to mention this because I learned the song Froggy Went a Courtin' from Doc Watson. Got it off of one of his records. I think I mentioned that maybe in the video. And uh, had the uh, honor multiple times of opening for him and took both of my daughters, who are now grown adults with children of their own and so on. But when they were small, that was the time period that was all happening back in the 90s. And uh, both of my daughters, I'm proud to say, I asked Doc if he would play Froggy Win a Courtin' on stage and dedicate it to my daughters. And uh, one of them was McKinley and one was Amanda. And both of them uh, had uh, the, the honor of sitting out in the audience during Doc's show and having Doc sing and play Froggy Win a Courtin'. And nobody does it as, as good as he did. Uh, anyway, just that's enough of that. Uh, back to your uh, audio. It correctly. Uh, I'll be nervous, so that tends to not ever be good. And got to move my iPad so that hopefully you can see my hands. Now, the easy thing to do would be to get somebody that can see to video this, but. Um, I've never been known for taking the easy way out. I've never been accused of that. So, <laughs> um, guess that's what got me to where I am, maybe. But anyway, I hope you can see this and let me know what I need to do to get better. And I'm going to get the metronome on. I'm going to pause you right there because... Thank goodness you're using the metronome. That is such a good idea. And I'm saying this to anyone else who might ever hear this. I have preached the metronome and till I'm blue in the face. And I'm just thankful, Heather, that you, I'm sure you knew about the metronome long before you ever heard of the mandolin or me or anything. Uh, just to anyone else who might ever hear this, um, use the metronome.
right, just a quick thing. I ain't worried about them wrong notes. <laughs> you heard them. Now, if you didn't hear them, then I'd be worried. But, you know, I don't need to tell you. Uh, the next go around, I'm sure they won't be there or there'll be different wrong notes. You know, everybody plays wrong notes. It's no big deal unless you're unaware of them and you're, you are completely aware. So I don't need to say a thing more about wrong notes, except I'm not even sure there are such things. But anyway, okay, let's continue. One more time and try to not miss the notes that I missed. Uh, <laughs> my excuse is other than that I'm still very bad at this is that uh, my mother was asking me a question and it distracted me uh, she actually did and that's my excuse so I'm going to try to play the right notes this time By the way, that was a good recovery there. <laughs> um, you're doing everything right. You really are. Um, but I did see something in the video. And uh, to make sure you get your money's worth, I'm going to describe what I saw. And I only saw this, I think, twice, perhaps three times. Again, I'm listening to the audio, not watching the video right now. So, But I did see it occur. And I've seen it with many, 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 many students. And I will point out what I saw, and you're probably even aware of it. You know, I, it's probably like those wrong notes. You know, you know it, and uh, you, you know you'll try to do better on the next round. Uh, but let me just describe what I saw, and then give you a suggestion of how you can fix it. And uh, first, I'll say that the the and you know this the essence of this piece are quarter notes and pairs of eighth, eighth notes, or streams of eighth notes, the entire thing. So throughout this entire arrangement, all quarter notes begin with a downstroke. There are no tricks. There are no eighth note rests followed by a quarter, in which case you would play that quarter with an upstroke. And the way I'd like to describe this is just to imagine the measure broken into eight segments that are all called down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up. And wherever a note falls, if a note falls in the first segment, like it's the first eighth note of a group of eight eighth notes, then that first one is a down, and the second one is an up, and the third is down, and the fourth is up. So all the evens are down, and all the ups are all the odds, let's say it again, all the odds are down and all the evens are up. There, I think I got that right. So eight eighth notes are played down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, no matter what. Now you might say, well, what if you have a quarter note? So you're playing that little shuffle rhythm. You're playing quarter, two eighths quarter, two eighths. 
Well, you simply look at when does the note begin, which of those eight segments is it in, in time, and you play it with the stroke demanded by the segment, not by what you think you might ought to do. And here's, here's what happens. Most people have no problem with that playing on a single string. So if you're playing just a stream of eighth notes on the fourth string, let's say, you're just going down, up, 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 down, up. Simple. All your downstrokes are falling on the beats and all your upstrokes are on the off beats. If you were thinking four, four. One and two and three and four and one and two and three and four. And all the ands are ups and all the numbers are down. Always. And, and I, I'm kind of a Nazi about this. like Because if you try to sneak in an opposite direction, it throws you off. And most people, as I said, don't have a problem on a single string. It's when they begin to cross to the next string. So let's say you're playing four eighth notes on the fourth string down up down up then you have to switch to the third and you go down up down up on it so you have to remember that where you are in time determines the pick stroke and another way of thinking about it is this if you're playing four quarter notes down 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 they're all down strokes and they're all in those odd-numbered time sequence blocks. One, three, five, seven. But your hand has got to come back. You know, when you, when you let that quarter note ring for the value of a quarter note, your hand has got to come back up to the top to do it again. So that's an upstroke. It's an upstroke where you just miss the string. So even a quarter note is played with down up. You simply hit the string on the way down and don't hit it on the way up. But it's still a down up. So if you keep your hand in that pendulum motion of down up, 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 down up. It doesn't matter whether you play a quarter or a series of eights or rests. You play the rest the same way. If you had an eighth note rest at the beginning, you play it with a downstroke that does not strike the string, a silent note. So think about that. The only reason I'm bringing this up is for the majority of 95% of what you played just then, you were using the correct uh, pick directions. Only once or twice I saw you sneak in two downs in a row. Or, yeah, two downs in a row. And most people tend to do that when they encounter a string change. You're going along, da 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 da, da and you got to hit the next string over. And there's a tendency when you're going toward the floor to reach down and play a downstroke. Just be certain that whenever a string change occurs, the pick direction flow does not change. So here's a little exercise that I would suggest you try. And you can play this on any pair of strings. I'm going to describe it using the fourth and the third string. Just to, so my brain can handle this. So what I want you to picture is a series of eighth notes. Eight 
eighth notes, and they're going to be played down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, and we're going to be on the fourth string. So that's measure one. You're going to play one and two and three and four and on the fourth string. The second measure, what we're going to do is we're going to shift to the third string at a different point each measure. So the first measure will be eight notes on the G string. Down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up. The second measure, we're going to play the, the eighth note is going to be on the D string. So you're going to play seven notes on the G string followed by one on the D string. So you're going to go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, switch up. And when you switch, you're going to play an upstroke on that last note, just like you always would. Because if you play eight in a row on the same string, the eighth note is an upstroke. So even if you switch strings, it still should be an upstroke, not a down. You know, you are reaching down to get the, the D string, but it should still be played with an upstroke. So well, you're making a wider um, arm movement, but the pick direction should not change. So then you try that. So you're going seven notes on the G string followed by one on the D string. So it's down, up, down, up, down, up, down. Switch to the D string up and don't stop the time. That's measure two. Now the next measure, doing six and two. So you're going to go down, up, down, up, down, up, switch, down, up. And that is a completely different movement. Because when you did the first one, the seven notes followed by one on, a, on the D string, you just played it. Your seventh note was a downstroke on the G string. And then you're going to end with an upstroke on the D string. And that is a wider, longer distance to jump. But if you play six, down, up, down, up, down, up, and then you switch. So seven and eight are on the D string. One through six are on the G string. Seven and eight. That's, that's what I call an inside string change. Because you just played an up on the fourth string, and now you're playing a down on the third string, that's a smaller movement. It's completely different than the, that big wide outside swing when you go on the odd numbers. So all I'm, all I'm saying is, um, I have this written out, but um, I'm just describing it so you can try it. Play eight notes on one string. Eight eighth notes. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight over and over. Get that going with your metronome and stuff. And then gradually start changing the final note. So you're going to play seven and one. You can do that a little bit. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And you're reaching over on eight to get that D string. And it's an upstroke. Then you go six and two. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Those will be easy because that seven and eight is down up. Then you do five and three. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 
over there, you see? So you're shifting the, 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 the string you're playing on at different points within the eight, eight notes. Hopefully that makes sense. And you shift them all the way to the other end until when you get to the end, you're just playing eight down ups on the D string. So, you, you know, it's eight and zero, and then it's seven and one, six and two, five and three, four and four. That's super easy. Then it's three and five. Then it's two and six. Then it's one and seven. Then it's eight, 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 eight on the other one. You see what I'm saying? And if you work on that little exercise and do not alter your down up, just down up, down up, down up, down up, regardless of the string you're playing, then you will cure yourself of that. And then when you're, when you feel really good about that, just do it all in reverse. Begin the exercise on the D string and just go up to the G string on the, on the eighth note. So you're playing D string, da, 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 you know, on the eighth note, you come up and hit the upstroke on the G. Now, if you want to carry this to crazy extremes, you could even hop strings and play the fourth to the second and the second to the fourth. And, you know, we don't really encounter those too often in most traditional music, but you could do that too. But I would just suggest you try that little exercise, um, eight eighth notes on the G string, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, and repeat it and repeat it. And then on the next go, make it seven and one. And you're going from the G string to the D string and then right back to the G. So it's G, 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 D. I couldn't do that right. G, 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 D, G, 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 D, G, 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 D. And those Ds are ups. Make sure they're ups. That's it. You just don't want to break that steady pendulum-like motion of the pick on eighth notes. So we'll get into triplets right now. Okay, back to your audio. That. was almost equally as awful, but hopefully you can get something from that and give me some feedback. Look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Thank you, Heather. I, I enjoyed doing this. I mean, uh, you know, it was the kind of, it's the sort of convert. I, I wish you were sitting here so that we could, you know, when I say something, you could respond back, but this is a little slower version of the exact same concept. And I encourage you to, uh, to, to listen to what I said, try some of those things, ignore the stuff that doesn't make any sense, and uh, hopefully some good will come out of it. And I am encouraging you to, if you like, to respond, either just an audio or, or make another little video or whatever, you know. Uh, don't feel like you're limited to uh, one single video. You can always do another one, a little follow-up, because I would, I would, I gain from this as much as you do in in learning how to teach. So, you know, uh, feel you are you are welcome to um, make a little response video and send that back to me too. Anyway, this has been a pleasure, and it's uh, good to meet you in a sort of oddball method. Um, and, uh, maybe one day we can sit down and play that old froggy one accordion together. Wouldn't that be fun? Anyway, thank you, Heather. And good luck with the mandolin. 
uh, feel free to email me anytime you have any kind of a question. And I'll be a talk to you. And don't forget to go over and scope out the Grass Talk Radio podcast. Thanks, everybody. And thank you again, Heather. And remember, if you want to get that big discount that uh, Jared was talking about, just go to the show notes, use that coupon code at checkout and cash in. Y'all take care, keep your sanity, and I'll talk to you in the next podcast. Through 30 years of farming, raising kids and corn, his dream of sailing faded and was worn. But beneath his dusty overalls, somewhere in his core, Harvey Johnson set out from the shore. Somewhere living all his dreams, Harvey Johnson's ship sailing true. Somewhere on the seven seas, Harvey Johnson sails across the blue.